U.S. equity markets are preparing for fireworks as we start this historic week, just after fizzling out in red October as investors backed away from risk. The animal spirits are slam dancing as the election approaches on Tuesday. Anything can happen. Did it just get hot in here, or did I just turn 50? I don't know, but volatility's screaming right now, so tune in and turn it up. You are on the Investopedia Express, and I'm Caleb Silver. On today's show, we'll go inside the market meltdown with our own James Chen to follow the money flow. Then we'll spend a few really good minutes with downtown Josh Brown, a.k.a. the Reform Broker. We'll get his thoughts on how to cool your mind in chaotic times, and we'll discuss his new book, How I Invest My Money. And of course, terminology time to wrap things up as we say hello to November. This month is going to be special. First, let's get set for the week. We've got two months left in the year, and the U.S. election is on Tuesday, but don't expect a clear outcome for a while. That's going to stir the pot, and the pot is hot. The VIX, or Volatility Index, a.k.a. the Fear Index, closed October at 38, its 14th highest monthly close since 1990. Implied volatility, that's the market's forecast for future craziness, it's climbing high into the end of the year. We'll get more earnings this week as PayPal, Alibaba, Square, and Roku are among the companies scheduled to report. And believe it or not, about halfway through the earnings season, most companies appear to be in the midst of a comeback. 81% of companies are beating earnings expectations. That's the most in a decade if you're keeping score. But you really don't need to. Amazon raked in $97 billion in sales last quarter, and the stock still sold off last week. That tells you where investor sentiment is right now. Stocks fell hard last week, as mentioned, with the S&P tumbling more than 5.5%. We haven't had a week like that since March and it never feels good. But perspective is everything, dear investors. We're not investing for the day or the week or even the year. We are playing the long game. The S&P 500, the benchmark stock index here in the U.S., is up about 1% this year after all that's happened and all we're about to go through. The Nasdaq is up even more, 20%. Money needs a place to go, and it has found a home in high-flying tech stocks and gold, the perfect dichotomy for the madness that is 2020. Also coming up this week, Auto sales have been a bright spot in consumer spending, accounting for most of the increase last month. We'll hear more about how the good times are rolling in the auto sector on Tuesday when October sales figures are released. Central banks from around the world are meeting this week on interest rates and monetary policy. The game of limbo continues as we see how low they can go, with most at, near, or below zero. What else can central bankers do to keep economies afloat? The United States will formally withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord on Wednesday, That's either going to signify the beginning of a new era, or it will be reversed depending on who wins the Oval Office. And the October U.S. jobs report will be out on Friday. Whoever the next president is will have that vexing problem to deal with, as more than 10 million Americans are unemployed, and more than 20 million are receiving some form of unemployment insurance. Let's do a check-in on what's happening inside major asset classes with James Chen, Investopedia's head of investing and trading education. Welcome back to The Express, James. Thanks a lot for having me again, Caleb. Of course. October was true to historical form as the worst month for stocks for the year, with the uncertainty spreading with the virus, with the election, and just about everything else adding fuel to the fire, James. Where have investors been running for safety? The usual places? Well, I would say definitely not gold and not bonds either, the usual safe havens. As you know, bond yields have been rising and that pushes bond prices down. But we're seeing a general uptick in the utilities sector, which is another safety play. I actually think many investors have moved to cash ahead of the big election risk event, as well as all the other risks this week. 
but I don't necessarily see a fight away from equities for the longer term. Rather, uh, you know, there's a lot of hedging activity right now, hence the, the buying of options and the rise in options-based volatility like the VIX as a result. Right. We know volatility is high. It's not as high as it was back in March, but it's pretty darn high at right around 38.40. But looking out to the rest of the year, it's also pretty high as implied volatility, right? The bet on future wackiness in the market seems to be also bubbling quite higher through the end, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've seen this rise in volatility for the month of October. And, uh, you know, actually, if you take a look at the VIX and the VIX futures, you'll see that the VIX has risen to a, a key resistance point sort of matching the highs of June. So we're at a critical juncture right now for, for volatility. So we'll see if there's a breakout. Hey, we pay a lot of attention to the US equity markets and European equity markets. But when you look outside of these countries, we're seeing outperformance in countries like Nigeria, China, and Vietnam. What is that telling you about investors' perception of where the global recovery is or, or where they want to park their money right now, given the uncertainty in the bigger markets? Well, clearly, we're seeing not a lot of strength in the U.S. equities markets, at least for now. And we have a lot of risk factors in the U.S. That's not to say there aren't uh, risk factors elsewhere. But in terms of equity markets, we're seeing relative strength in emerging markets, as you mentioned, most notably China. Now, uh, you know, we see that uh, China's recovery and economic uh, progress after the pandemic has been much better than others. And, you know, that's, uh, we could see that their economy has been progressing really well. Uh, with respect over the weekend, they had their PMI numbers come out, which were very good. Their manufacturing report, and it does show that they're strong, as strong as the, the, the best month uh, since 2011 for China. So certainly on the rebound there. So I know you follow currency markets, James. What are the major trends happening now with the dollar against major currencies? And what's happening in the euro as several countries like Germany, France, and others are imposing these partial lockdowns? Well, you know, the dollar has been showing some strength lately, but overall it's still stuck in a pretty well-defined range. Uh, if we're talking about the euro, it's been uh, suffering lately against the dollar, partly because of the notable pandemic resurgences in Europe, like the countries you mentioned. But euro is at the bottom of a major range at the moment. Uh, any breakdown of this range, we could be seeing a further potential resurgence of the dollar. And the dollar strengthening as a, as a former flight to safety, or is the dollar just uncertain right now, given the election? Uh, I would say the dollar is a flight to safety. Uh, we don't see money going into gold or bonds, but the dollar has been uh, strengthening of late. Okay. James Chen, our head of investing and trading education. Always good to have you on The Express, James. Thanks so much, Caleb. If you're a CNBC watcher or a financial blog reader or an investment planner or advisor, you know who downtown Josh Brown is. He's also known as the Reform Broker, and he's a mainstay on business news and across social media, providing that sound, consistent, funny, and candid advice on markets and investing. He's out with a new book, How I Invest My Money, that he's worked on with Brian Portnoy and Carl Richards. It brings together 24 financial advisors who give their own honest take on investing their own money, something we don't see much of in this industry. We'll get into the book, Josh's take on evidence-based investing, and his advice for individual investors like us for the next few months. Here's my conversation with Josh Brown. 
We just drop our list of the 100 most influential financial advisors in the country. And influence to us is measured by what you do with your platform to educate investors, to educate the public, to reach out across the financial advice and planning community to really help other advisors with their practice. That's what we think about influence. And Josh, you're always at the top of this list. So congrats on that and congrats to the other 100. There's so many, so many great people on that list. It's, it's unbelievable the, the wealth of talent in our industry, up and coming people, young people, people that came in through non-traditional pathways. It really is an honor to be named you know, along, alongside them. And I know so many of them and it's, I think it's great. You're real big on evidence-based investing. We have that term on the site, but just explain in fundamental terms what you mean by that. You, you talked about the behavioral, the fundamental, but what does that actually mean and how do you apply it? Evidence-based investing means accepting the fact that there's so much that's unknowable that when you're planning investments and you're planning portfolios, all you can really do is work probabilistically. And that applies to the way you hedge your portfolio. It applies the way that you set the rules about how you're going to rebalance, how you're going to make decisions, what's your decision-making framework. And all of those things that you're setting up and all of those things that you're planning should be planned and orchestrated based on the information that we have. There aren't a lot of things that I would tell you are iron rules of finance. There just aren't, but there are a few and maybe not quite iron, but we know that risk and reward are inextricably linked. We know that anything you do to lower your risk will have the ancillary effect of lowering your potential reward. There's no way out of it. There's no way out of it. You want to take less risk, that's fine. You will be forced to accept less reward, not over the course of one day, but over time. We know that stocks do better than bonds and serve as a better inflation hedge than gold. We know it. We know it. It's a fact. We know that there are differences between historical rates of return between U.S. stocks versus international stocks uh, versus emerging market stocks. We know this. And we know that having a portfolio that allows you to take advantage of the strength of one and the weakness of another over long stretches of time, we know it works. So we know that stocks do better than bonds. We know that bonds do better than cash. We understand these things as, as how it works. But then the important thing to caveat all of those conversations with is in any given year, it doesn't have to work that way. There's no bus schedule, right? So you have to accept that. You cannot have it any other way. You can't say, I don't accept reality. And that reality is permanently uncertain. You still have to be true to yourself at the end of the day, right? So yes. you've been able to do oh, yeah, that yeah. through the books. And, and how do you do that sort of on a day in, day out basis when you have to go on TV and talk about it? What you can do is be authentic and you know say what's on your mind and say what you think and be reasonable. One of the things that I try to do, and I hope I'm doing it successfully, is always leave room to be wrong or always leave room to change my mind. So you will not frequently or ever maybe find me pounding the table on any one specific investment at any one specific time. Here's the problem with that. People gravitate toward people who are certain, right? In all forms of life. So on Wall Street, if someone comes out and says, the S&P will finish this year at 3,600, you could take it to the bank. Intellectually, you know that the person saying that can't really know that, but it's still attractive. It makes you want to hear more from them. Where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. The reason all of us are alive today is because 100,000 years ago, our ancestors followed strong leadership. They followed someone who was certain. Now, some of the people who were followed who were certain were wrong. For example, we're going to stay in this cave tonight. It's safe. Uh-oh. 
there, there was a saber-toothed tiger. Okay, so that tribe is gone. But all of us here today, we listen to people who were certain enough to command our respect and attention, and they led us to safety in some way, shape, or form, or led us to food, or led us to move to the right village, or whatever the case may be. That's why we're all here. So we have that in our DNA, Caleb. We want to listen to people who are certain or who project confidence. Here's the problem with that. In a financial or an investing context, you can't be certain of anything. There was a thing in the 1900 to 1950, anytime the dividend yield on the stock market got below the dividend yield on the bond market, stocks were a buy or excuse me, vice versa. And, and then it switched to the 1950s and it never went back the other way. So you had 50 years worth of people knowing that the time to buy stocks was based on their yield versus a treasury bond. 50 years, it always worked. It would get to that level, buy them, get to that level, buy them, just using dividend yields versus bond rates. And it was like clockwork. Imagine that. Multiple generations of investors passed this on to each other. And then in 1957, it crossed over. And never went back and never went back. And all of a sudden, people like that had set their watch by this way of investing were so certain it would always work. It doesn't work anymore. So being that certain and being a leader of minds and of, of men and women and telling people this is how it is, if you do that in finance, you're often leading people off the cliff. So it's very important that you don't do that. So what I try to do is present my certainty on television and elsewhere. But the thing that I'm most certain of is that nothing is certain. So that's the trick. Okay. That's my shtick. I I let you know the secret. That's the trick. I know for sure that there are good frameworks for investing and there are things that are usually true and that there are things that you can somewhat rely on. But I also know that things can change all of a sudden, and it'll be a very long time before we recognize that that's true. So I always leave myself room to say, you know what? I used to believe this very strongly, but now I no longer do. And here's why. So I think I've been able to do that over the last 10 years successfully. And I think people recognize the honesty and the authenticity in that. I'm going to try to keep doing that you know, going forward. Right. And I think that is why people to gravitate towards you. And there are so many axioms in investing, sell in Maine, go away. And, and you could name a thousand of them. Um, well, I actually, anything that, anything that rhymes, I actually yeah. do believe in. So, right. But they're actually true until they're not, as you say, but I've heard you say this many times on TV and in reading your blog over the years, professional investors have to put money to work. They have to do something. Individual investors, like a lot of people listening to this, don't have to do anything. It's not yeah. your job. You're not trying to beat any benchmark, but you're trying to, you know, stick to your plan and make your plan work. It's so hard for people, you know, especially engaged individual investors to do that. How do you counsel them when you're just like, you, you don't have to, you, it's not your job to, to beat the market right now. That's such a good question, Caleb. You know, we hear a lot in the media and in the press about all these advantages that Wall Street has over Main Street. And of course, there's a lot more money involved on Wall Street than, than on Main Street, like these investing advantages. And it's, it's really not true. The professional investor class has been absolutely beleaguered in the last 10 years because they find themselves sitting under the sword of Damocles, and that sword is dangling from uh, Vanguard's uh, campus. It has never been harder to beat the benchmarks, and at the same time, it has never been more apparent to more people that, that it's hard to do. Like people, 
people have come along to accept this idea that 70 something percent of all mutual funds that have ever existed have not been able to beat their benchmarks and that the 30 percent are much harder to select in advance than you might think. There's really no rhyme or reason for how to do it. Right. So people now know this information and they're investing accordingly. So if you're a pro, you're up against that kind of pressure. To your point, Caleb, if you're a regular person, what do you, what do you care about that debate? It's, it, it means nothing to you. You don't have to beat the S&P this quarter. You're not reporting to anyone. You're reporting to your future self 25 years from now. And that goes for global macro nonsense and trend following. If you're not going to do this full time, then don't do it part time. Don't do it at all. Skip the entire debate. Put together a portfolio that's durable enough that you can live with it. Set the rules in advance for when you're going to contribute, when you're going to rebalance, and when you're going to take money out in the future. Make decisions that are good based on your taxes and and based on your need for liquidity. And then just shut up. Nobody has a gun to your head. No one's forcing you to think you're supposed to wake up, turn on the TV, open the Wall Street Journal, and like try to do something amazing like every day. It's absurd. So I think a lot of people don't understand that. They think that by taking action and by obsessing over day-to-day price moves, that they're being responsible investors. No, it's the opposite. You know what the best thing that could happen to your portfolio is? Literally, you get stranded on an island like Tom Hanks and then rescued 30 years later. And your financial advisor says, wow, I forgot all about you. You earned uh, an average annual return of 11%. You're loaded. Congratulations. Like that's the best case scenario for you as an investor. No offense. The worst case is that you're like one of these hands-on people that's going to move things around every day. All you're doing is churning your own account. Back in the day when I was at the brokerage firms, there were guys that would do that professionally for you. Now you're doing it to yourself. There's no purpose. So you asked a great question. My answer to you is, you don't have to play the daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly performance game. Let's get into the book because how I invest my money, again, we talked about it at the top, but you you were driven to this because you actually, I read the blog post you wrote about this a couple of years ago, and it was so refreshing to actually hear an advisor tell you what they do. And it was not all that different from, you know, what a lot of people might do in the same situation, but you brought so many voices into that. I love the illustrations. Tell us about the origins and where they come from. And and they're just perfectly encapsulate things so simply uh, in this book. So Carl Richards, who drew this sketch, And by the way, he's been doing these for the New York Times for 10 years. So his website is behaviorgap.com, but he's been a New York Times columnist for a decade and coming up with sketches to help people better understand money. He's an absolute saint in our industry. And I've been a huge fan of his from day one. We asked Carl to write a chapter. Uh, Portnoy uh, went to him and was like, you got to be in this book, guy. And he was just like, all right, I'll do it. And then- He was like, no, I don't think I'm going to do it. You know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to read everyone else's chapter and I'm going to to illustrate it. And Portnoy and I, I was going to say looked at each other, but I think we were on the phone. We were like, oh my God, oh my God. So we got really, really lucky that Carl wanted to participate. And let me tell you, there's 25 chapters. So he contributed 25 custom illustrations, one for each advisor. And he basically read the chapter and whatever came to him, to visualize the concept that the advisor was explaining or or the financial professional was explaining. He just, he sketched it and they're beautiful. And I love every one of them so much. 
Right. I mean, that's that blink that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. What does it make you think about instantly? I thought that the actual, the advisors kind of sketch them and then he redid them, but no, that that's no, no, no. This is all off, off, off the dome for him. He just, he did them all. They are incredible. And like I said, it's a great read. It reads so fast. You think you're going to take down two, you take down seven. Let's get back to you though, your sketch, because you do this professionally, but you're also a dad. You're also a husband. You're also on TV and on the media. An Olympian. Come on. You have, you have all these other things going on, but everybody <laughs> thinks that this is what you do because you talk about it all the time. Put your own investing and your own, you know, the way you kind of run your own financial life into perspective for the rest of us that don't know you as well. Well, so I think what Carl was doing here was he was keying off this thing I was talking about where a lot of the stuff that I end up investing in is just because of the way I choose to live my life and the things that I think are bigger than just what my investment results are. So like when my friends launch an ETF, I just invest in it. It doesn't have to make any sense for my portfolio. I just want to do it. I want to help them. I've got friends that have started businesses or people that I really respect who have started fintech companies and I invest. And that's now part of my portfolio. And it wasn't a mathematical decision. It was something I'm passionate about and I wanted to be a part of it. So that's what I'm trying to convey in the chapter. And I was actually inspired by a quote that I include in the book from Jack Bogle. So Jack Bogle is like the high priest of low cost index funds. And he's never invested in anything but, and he's never recommended to anyone else to do anything but. And he's as close as you get to like messianic, let's say about, okay. So then he's talking about like his son, manages a small cap stock mutual fund that is very far away from an index in terms of how he manages it and very high cost. And Jack invests in his, in his son's fund and he's not apologizing to anyone for it. And people's like, people's like, Oh, is that, is that inconsistent? So Bogle says, yes, life is inconsistent and some things we do for family reasons. And I, I really loved hearing that anecdote. I think I read about it in an article while Jack was alive, and that always stuck with me. I don't have to defend my portfolio to you. What is your problem? This is what I want to do. So I think it's really nice when we go through the 25 chapters and each contributor, how different everyone is. Like there's no one portfolio that everyone in the book agrees to, even though we all agree on some very important tenets about the right way to invest. So I thought that was really cool how it turned out that way. We had no idea it would. Your last sort of words of advice for the individual investor are going to be a choppy ride even after the election, but just a little bit more for a little bit of perspective from you on the way out. And again, we appreciate you joining us, but what would you tell those folks out there that are just like, I just, I'm just nervous right now. Well, be more nervous about the virus than the election and be more upset about the fact that there's no second round of stimulus than you are about whatever's going to happen with tax rates. The virus and the stimulus are all that matters. The Fed is on the sidelines. Dudley did an op-ed today, and he sat in the second to biggest seat there. Dudley did an op-ed today and said, I'm not going to say we're out of bullets at the Fed, but we're out of bullets, right? Like It's the government's job. Powell said it two weeks ago. The Fed is on the sideline, not a factor. We're halfway through earnings season. But the market is not reacting to those earnings. Stocks with great earnings are going down too. So that's on the sideline. So we really only have two things that can help or hurt the market right now, in my opinion. And they have nothing to do with the winner of the election. It could be either person. The market just wants the election over. What matters is stimulus 
and Trump just basically told you we're not getting any before the election. We're going to have a contested election, which means there won't be any stimulus till February. Sorry. Sorry. If Trump loses, he's not going to start signing stimulus bills. Okay, while he fights this out in the Supreme Court. That's what you should focus on. It's not good. The other thing that you should focus on, though, is the virus. First and foremost, a vaccine will be game changing for the stock market. Just the announcement. Forget about how many doses. The announcement will be game changing. That's why you can't get too bearish here. So I just think calm down. Take a deep breath. Remember the anecdote I just told you. We lost 16 percent in the S&P 500 five falls ago, and people don't even remember why. Okay, it's part of the game. You signed up for this. You want the returns. Remember, I told you, inextricably linked from the risk. So buckle up. And if you're young, keep investing. Take advantage of this drawdown. And you'll be better off five years from now when Caleb and I do this all over again. Thank you. You'll still be in your 30s and I will be uh, probably retired. But Josh Brown, we so appreciate your time. The book, How I Invest My Money, it is out. It is tremendous. I recommend you check it out. I recommend you check out The Compound. Follow Josh uh, wherever he puts out his media and information and all the folks at Ritholtz Wealth Management. We so appreciate your time and, and all the generosity you've shown Investopedia over the years, Josh. Thanks so much. Uh, you're, you're the best. We love you guys. Great site, great service for everyone. Thank you so much. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart about the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term is brought to us from listener Argyroy, who hit us up on Instagram and gets a pair of Investopedia socks for picking the term. The term is value at risk, or VAR, as the pros like to call it. And value at risk, according to Investopedia, is a statistic that measures and quantifies the level of financial risk within a firm, a portfolio, or a position over a specific time frame. It's most commonly used by investment and commercial banks to determine the extent and occurrence ratio of potential losses in their institutional portfolios. Risk managers use VAR to measure and control their own level of risk exposure. You can even apply VAR calculations to specific positions within your portfolio or the whole portfolio overall. Why is value at risk this week's term? Because it's getting pretty risky out there, and it's always a good time for individual investors like us to assess our own risk tolerance and make sure it fits our individual needs. As Josh Brown reminded us this week, we're not competing against anybody but ourselves as investors, and we have to take care of our own house. No matter what happens in the race for the White House this week, take care of your own house, yourself, and your family. Let's let President Franklin Delano Roosevelt take us out with his powerful reminder to the nation in 1940 as the war clouds gathered over Europe. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. Thanks for rolling with the Investopedia Express this week. I'm Caleb Silver. We'll talk to you on the other side. <laughs>